Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. Good morning, Ramp Church. It's good to see you. Many of you asked um, about my trip. I was recently in the United States for the last three weeks, but I'm glad to be home in Manchester. It's good to be here. If my head is uh, peeling from time to time, my skin has become more British since I've been here, and it's very very unaccustomed now to the Alabama sun. And so I was only exposed to the Alabama sun for maybe 15 minutes. And in those 15 minutes, um, some, some things happened uh, called sunburn and then the, the impact of that. But anyway, it's great to be home. Um, let's go in our word together to Matthew, the book of Matthew. And we're going to look at chapter number 21, read uh, 11 verses there is our plan. And then we'll look at some other scriptures as well to fill in some details concerning Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday commemorates the day where Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and what happens when he rides into Jerusalem is what we're going to talk about today. So Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today, that as your word goes forth, it would go forth with revelation, with wisdom, and with power in our lives. Lord, we're here today to hear from you in a way that brings transformation into our lives. We know, according to the words of Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy, that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We ask that your word would proceed out of your mouth today, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would bring life and transformation to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to approach the theme of Palm Sunday maybe a little differently today. And I want to look at it through this lens, the juxtapositions of Palm Sunday. The juxtapositions of Palm Sunday. 
Now maybe it's been a little while since you've been in literature class and you've had a tangle with the word juxtapositions, so let's just talk about it for just a moment. What is a juxtaposition? It is a literary or an artistic device that's used to really strengthen a point. Um, the way it's used to strengthen a point is it uses comparison. It puts two things together that don't really belong together. Many times those two things are opposites. And it holds them together in a place of tension so that when you look at them, you see them much more clearly. You have to think about them much more deeply. You think about what makes them different, and by doing that, you see each one in a much more clear way. So let me give you some examples. One of the most well-known juxtapositions is from the British author Charles Dickens. He wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities, and it may be the most well-known opening to any novel ever. And here's how it starts, Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. Now, what he's doing there is he's using juxtaposition to say these two opposites, the best of times and the worst of times, the spring of hope, the winter of despair, they were coexisting together in the same time, in the same place, and by putting these, these tension points together, you now have to think about them much more deeply. So Charles Dickens did that, and that became, juxtaposition became a favorite literary device, especially as you got into the 20th century, and you get all of these modernist writers. Now Charles Dickens did it, did it in a way that was more lighthearted, and its emphasis was on beauty, but when you get to the modernist poets and writers and painters, they had a little bit of a darker undertone because they were shaped by World War I and this whole bleak outlook on the world and the European wars and, and the massive devastation. So one of those most well-known poets was a man by the name of T.S. Eliot. Now he's American born, but eventually becomes a British poet. He moves to um, uh, Britain and lives here for the rest of his life. So he wrote a book, uh, wrote a book. He wrote a series of poems. One of his most well-known is called, is called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And here's how he begins the poem with a juxtaposition. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. Now before we go on, let's just go back, go back, go back. Don't read that. Yeah, okay. It sounds like a very pleasant, beautiful sort of poem. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. It gives you sort of this warm cozy sunset, let's go on a walk together through a park and enjoy some wonderful conversation. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, but then he takes a turn in the next statement, he says this, like a patient etherized upon a table. Now a patient etherized upon a table is a patient under an anesthetic about to go through some serious kind of surgery. And so you begin with thinking that this is a beautiful sunset, but then all of a sudden you realize the evening is spread out not in restful repose, but in uh, this sort of agonized anticipation that I'm about to go through something quite traumatic, all right? Juxtaposition in modernist art. You go a little bit further in the 20th century, and you get darker elements of juxtaposition. 
So you get into the 1960s and there's a uh, surrealist painter from Belgium by the name of Rene Magritte. And he uses juxtaposition in kind of startling ways. Here's one of the ways in which he uses juxtaposition. Let's show this painting. This painting is called Son of Man and it's supposed to be a self-portrait. But there's something about it that's unsettling. Self-portrait, but you can't see his face. And I don't know why, but this painting agitates me. This painting bothers me. Because when I look at it, I'm like, just move the stupid apple. Get it out of the way so I can see your face. Something obscuring someone's face doesn't belong in a self-portrait. But Magritte is doing this intentionally because he's communicating a level of the, the modernist or postmodernist experience where there's always something obstructing what we want to see. What we do see is hiding what we cannot see and there's conflict there. Why am I talking about juxtaposition, Charles Dickens, T.S. Eliot, and Renee Magritte? Because when you look at Palm Sunday, it appears to be, at first glance, a joyful, victorious, triumphant day. And most people's Bibles, the heading over the scripture passage says the triumphant entry or the triumphal entry. But when you look a little closer at the details, there's a lot of juxtaposition happening. There's a lot going on there where certain things about the story, they don't actually fit together. You think they fit together, but when you think about it, they don't fit together. Let me use one of the most obvious examples, which is probably the most overlooked juxtaposition in the story. The fact that it's called Palm Sunday. Now, if you're to go back and look at the details of the story, you know that there is gathering together at the city of Jerusalem. The reason why people are gathering together is because three times a year in Israel's feast, they had what they called a pilgrim feast. Passover, Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the three times that the, the people of Israel were called to ascend to Jerusalem to worship God in a sacrificial way. And Palm Sunday, this Sunday, is the Sunday that directly precedes the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was crucified around what feast? Passover. He's crucified at Passover, and there's so much prophetic significance there because he is the Lamb of God that is offered up on our behalf so the death angel can pass over and we come out of the bondage of sin and captivity into God's promises. So Jesus is crucified at Passover. My question is, why are they using palms? If you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, it teaches us a lot about the Feast of Israel. In Leviticus 23, it maps out each of these feasts. And right around verse number 40, let me find the exact one. Leviticus 23, yeah, verse number 40. It's describing in this passage, not the Feast of Passover. It's describing the Feast of Tabernacles which happens in the fall, a completely different time of year. Here's what it says in Leviticus 23, 40. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So palm branches were certainly used in the Feast of Israel, but they were not used at Passover. 
They were used at tabernacles. So we find a little bit of juxtaposition already in the story. They're using palm branches at Passover, not at tabernacles. What's going on? You know what it's doing? Just like the poets of the modernist century, it's creating a little bit of tension for the reader. It's saying, why are these two things coexisting when they don't actually fit together? Let me point out another juxtaposition in the story. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. There's a juxtaposition between familiarity and unfamiliarity concerning Jesus. Now, again, we think of Palm Sunday as this triumphant day of entry where Jerusalem welcomes her king. But if you look at the story, what you'll find is that there is a multitude around Jesus as he goes toward the city, and that multitude knows him, but when he gets to the city, the city where he's destined to be king actually does not know him. Let's look at the details in Matthew 21, verses 8 through 10. We already read this, but let's revisit it. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So there's a multitude around him, before him and behind him. They know who he is, not just that he's Jesus of Nazareth. They know his prophetic identity as the son of David, and they're surrounding him with songs. But look at the juxtaposition as they come into Jerusalem in verse number 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? The multitude knows exactly who he is. The city has no idea who he is. A juxtaposition of familiarity and unfamiliarity. Let's look at another juxtaposition, some things that do not fit together. I'll say it like this. Palm Sunday is both a day of triumph and a day of tears. It's a day where Jesus is celebrated by the multitude, where he is praised by children, but he himself has agony in his heart and he is weeping as he's riding into the city. Sometimes we miss that detail on Palm Sunday, that though there was praise around him, there was sorrow within him. This is in Luke Chapter 19, Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, tell, it tells the same story that Matthew does. Matthew chapter 21, each of the four gospels all talk about this entry into Jerusalem and him riding on a donkey and each highlight different details in different ways so we can get a, a fuller picture of, of the narrative. So in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, again, we get this picture of Jesus coming in to the city. But when we get down to verse 41, again, this is not changing stories. This is the same story. Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Look at verse 41. Now, as he drew near to what? To Jerusalem, surrounded by the praise of the multitude, surrounded by the praise of children, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. While they're praising, he is weeping while the sound of children is, is leading this royal procession, he has tears in his eyes. Juxtaposition of things that do not seem to fit together. What's another juxtaposition? I just mentioned it. The fact that there's a royal procession and at the center of a royal procession is not a horse, it's a donkey. When kings rode into town, they didn't ride in on donkeys, they rode in on horses. 
So we've got another juxtaposition. Because when Matthew explains the donkey bit, he quotes the book of Zechariah. He says, as it was written in the prophet. The prophet he's referring to is Zechariah. Zechariah, maybe more than any other minor prophet, talks about the strength of God as king coming to Jerusalem. I mean, he gets explicit with the details about what it looks like. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of Zechariah's description of this God who's coming with power to deliver Israel from her enemies, all of a sudden you get this inserted, this little bit about a donkey. And that's the part, I'm like, I'm confused. I'm like, that's the part that Jesus chose to fulfill? Like out of all of this that Zechariah is talking about, he chooses to zero in on the donkey bit, the one little part that looks like it does not fit. What's one more juxtaposition of Palm Sunday in the story that's happening? There is the juxtaposition of promise fulfilled, promise deferred. Promise fulfilled, promise deferred. Because obviously, as we just read in Matthew, we see the fulfillment of promise. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this is a fulfillment of what the prophet Zechariah wrote. But when Jesus is weeping for the city, why is he weeping? Because he knows that Jerusalem's promises, while they are being fulfilled in that moment, they are also being deferred to another day. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23, verse number 37. Now we looked at Luke 19, where Jesus is weeping over the city. Here in Matthew chapter 23, it's another moment where Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. But in this passage, he gives language to his tears. He describes why he is weeping. He also does it in Luke 19, but I really want to focus on this one because, again, it brings that contrast of promise fulfilled, promise deferred. Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that repetition of the city is because it's a lament, it, it's, it's a weeping moment, it's a cry for, of anguish. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And then notice verse 39, for I say to you, you shall see me no more, Till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is verse 39? It's a statement of deferment concerning promises. He's saying, because you don't know how to receive me now, I am deferring the day of fulfillment to the future. So this moment of me riding into the city, it is promise fulfilled, but it's also promise deferred. So Palm Sunday is a day of juxtaposition. It's a day of actual like aggravation if you look at it, just like that son of man painting where that apple's over his face and it just, it just annoys us. And you look at it and you're like, that doesn't fit. The details of the story do not fit together. So if the details don't fit together, why are they put together? Because just like the artists and the poets we just highlighted, there's intentionality behind the structure of Scripture. God did not accidentally put all these things together, didn't fit together. It's not like God forgot that you're not supposed to use palms on Passover. 
It's not like he was like, oh man, I forgot about that detail. Matthew, go back and fix it, you know, when he got to heaven. That's not what happened. God is intentional with his art. He's intentional with his story. And if he includes juxtaposition, it's because he's trying to get to see something about the way in which he works in the world. So I want to talk to you about four insights from the juxtapositions of Palm Sunday. Now, these are not exhaustive, just like any kind of art or any kind of poem the depths of it can be explored for the rest of your life. So I'm not going to resolve every juxtaposition that I just brought up, but I do want to talk to you about four insights, four things that the juxtapositions of Palm Sunday teach us about the nature of God, all right, and how he works in our lives. So number one, I want to talk to you about the work of God, the work of God. It gives us an insight, number one, into the work of God. What God did on Palm Sunday is he worked in partial fulfillment concerning his promise, not because he was rejecting total fulfillment, but because he was allowing partial fulfillment to reveal their need for greater preparation concerning total fulfillment. So Jesus rides into the city as king to show Jerusalem, you're not ready to receive me as king. But the fact that I'm here is a fulfillment of a promise from my father, but it's not total fulfillment. But I'm not going to wait till you're ready for full fulfillment before I come. I'm going to come and partially do what he said so you can realize you need to get ready to fully receive everything that he said. And what we need to know about the work of God in our lives is God works in partial fulfillment, not because he has rejected total fulfillment, but because he is preparing us for total fulfillment. We need to know that because, and here's why, there are seasons where we step into partial fulfillment of promises. And if we're not careful, we will look at those and go, well, it looks enough like what God said but not fully what God said. Maybe I misinterpreted what God said because this is a little bit like what God said, but not all of it. So, and if we're not careful, we will settle for a little bit of what God said because we think by him doing partially what he said that he's rejecting all of what he said and he's only committed to a little bit of it. But God doesn't work in partial fulfillment because he rejects total fulfillment. He works in partial fulfillment because he's preparing you for total fulfillment and revealing the steps you need to take to step into total fulfillment. You see, it's interesting. Some people's relationship with the promises of God in the Old Testament are very interesting. And we can apply this to personal promises as well, but let me just talk to you about Old Testament promises. A lot of times when you talk to people about the promises of God written in the Old Testament, Sometimes this language comes out, yeah, but Jesus fulfilled all that. Wait. Yeah, yes, but there's, there's, stuff, there's stuff that the Old Testament promises that hasn't happened yet. And sometimes we, we dismiss it and go, yeah, but Jesus fulfilled all that. In other words, whatever it says explicitly doesn't really matter because metaphorically we find it in Christ. And what I want to say to you is every, every promise in Christ is fulfilled, but that does not mean that every promise has yet been, yet, that does not mean that every promise 
has been manifested yet. So the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen, but that doesn't mean he performed every promise when he came the first time. Let me show you a couple of scriptures that are juxtaposition, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 20, is a scripture we think about often, and we should, because it talks about the hope there is in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through Jesus. So again, many times people think about Old Testament promises, they're like, wait, wait, I don't have to think about Old Testament promises and the way in which they may shape the future. Why? Because all the promises in him are yes and amen. They've already been fulfilled. Well, let me show you another scripture out of the book of Romans that is a contrast to that. It doesn't disagree with it, but it certainly gives us another angle, another perspective also written by the Apostle Paul. This is in Romans chapter 15, verse number eight. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. Servant to the circumcision is a theological shorthand for saying the Jewish people. A servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Second Corinthians says he is the fulfillment of the promises. Romans says he confirmed the promises. You don't need, a, you don't need to confirm a promise that has already been fulfilled. The reason you confirm a promise is because you're demonstrating your commitment to bring it into fullness. So what Paul is saying is that in principle, everything God has said is fulfilled in Jesus. In reality, only some of those promises have been fulfilled and he came to fulfill them partially in order to confirm God's commitment to his own word because he will bring them ultimately into fulfillness. What does that mean for you? What that means is if you are walking in partial promises, the partiality of the promises does not communicate that God has abandoned everything he said to you. It's actually confirmation that you're on your way. When Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, it doesn't mean that he won't ever come to fight against her enemies. It means that that day is coming, but he is partially fulfilling his word now to prepare them to fulfill it in fullness then. God working in your life happens in incremental ways. Don't let the increment you're on now cause you to embrace a discouragement. Because I know what it looks like when you get into a season when you're like, this kind of looks like what God said. Is this what God meant? Just because where you're in kind of looks like what God said doesn't mean that's the fullness of what God meant. It means that where he's leading you will be the fullness of it, but he's demonstrating his commitment to you now and preparing you to receive the fullness then. So it teaches us the juxtapositions on Palm Sunday. It teaches us about the work of God. Partial fulfillment is not a rejection of total fulfillment. Partial fulfillment is God's confirmation and commitment to you in the process and on the journey, all right? What's the second thing I wanna highlight about the juxtapositions of Palm Sunday? Number two is the patience of God. The fact that God allows there to be so many tensions in the story reveals his own patience. We don't like tension points. Again, when I, I can't look very long at that painting of Son of Man 
because I just want to get the apple off of his face. Like, it just, it, it annoys me. I don't like that it's unresolved. As humans, we can't stay in a place for too long that is unresolved. We need a sense of, it's like if someone were to play a guitar scale and they didn't end on the note of resolve, it's like your ear is like, one, one more, one more. Because when, you, when you, they hit the final note of resolve, you're like, oh, thank, thank you, Lord. There's something in our nature that wants there to be resolved. But God, I'm not saying God is okay with things being unresolved in your life. But God is so patient that he will let things be unresolved for a very, 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 very long time. Because he won't bring them into a place of resolve until he knows that it's best for you. So Jerusalem has to be annoyed when Jesus shows up as king and when he walks in, he's weeping because he's like, I'm here, but I'm not here yet. They're like, what? But you're here. I'm here, but you're not ready. So I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you in a place. That's why it was so confused. I'm going to leave you in a place of still wait. I'm going to leave you in a cliffhanger. That's why it was so confusing to the disciples when they are showing him all of the renovations of the temple. Do you remember that moment in, in scripture? They like come out of the temple and King Herod um, had begun all these massive renovation projects that went on beyond his death. And they're like making the temple this beautiful structure. And to a Jewish mind, that's a statement of their permanence in the land and the glory of God returning. So the disciples are like, Jesus, look at all these buildings. And he just like totally punches them in the gut. He says, yeah, that's great. Not one stone will be left upon another. What? I thought you were the king of Jerusalem here to rebuild the temple. What do you mean it's going to be destroyed again? Because I would rather you live with an unresolved issue than for me to just resolve everything, but you're not really to receive, you're not really ready to receive the work I want to do in you. And so the patience of God, he just likes to leave things in a state of agitating juxtaposition until the dissonance does its work in us. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter number one, verse number nine. And this verse, I like it, but it bothers me. Ugh, it bothers me. The book of Revelation, chapter one, verse number nine. Here's what the apostle John writes. I, John, your brother and companion. Notice the three things he writes about. We talk about juxtaposition. I, John, your brother and your companion, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Like those, those three things, king, king in the tribulation and kingdom, like those two things don't fit to me. Like if we're gonna talk about kingdom, let's talk about kingdom. If we're gonna talk about tribulation, let's talk about tribulation. Let's not talk about them together. But John is saying that we live in an age of juxtaposition where we, ha we taste kingdom realities while walking through very real tribulation on earth. And in order to endure that, what do we need? The third thing, patience. Because kingdom and tribulation will not always coincide, but right now they do. And we've gotta know the God of patience in the middle of it. 
So the second thing we learn about the juxtaposition of Palm Sunday is the patience of God and the kind of patience he invites us into as we walk with him toward the fulfillment of his promises. He will leave things unresolved, like I said a moment ago, until the dissonance does its work in us and gets gets us ready for the day of (sighs) fulfillment. That's why reading the book of Revelation is honestly for me a little maddening, a lot maddening. Because there are about like, there are like four or five times where you think the book should end and it doesn't. It's like breaks a seal, six more, gets to the seventh seal and you're like, this is it. Breaks the seventh seal and it just means that more trumpets come. You're like, what, we're starting over? Why are we starting over? And then trumpets start getting blown and you're like, all right, so we get to the seventh trumpet and that's it. Seventh trumpet gets blown and all these bowls start coming out. And it's like, it just keeps like, Starting and and it's like this book that is very unresolved and it agitates you until you get to the very end. And that's what it's like walking with God, the patience of God. He is willing to let things linger until the process does its work in us and prepares us to receive the fullness of what he wants. So that's the second thing I want to highlight, the work of God, the patience of God. The third thing I want to highlight is the, are the ways of God. The juxtaposition of Palm Sunday teaches us about the ways of God. And here's what I mean by that. God fulfills his word in surprising ways. So the work of God is partial fulfillment on the way to total fulfillment. The patience of God is his willingness to let things linger until we're ready to receive everything he has for us. The ways of God is that He likes to do what he does in ways that we do not expect. He likes to do what he does in ways that we don't expect. And Palm Sunday teaches us that if we are too married in our our minds to a certain way God's going to fulfill our promises, we'll probably be disappointed. Palm Sunday shows us that while his promises are true, the way we think he's going to fulfill those promises may not be true. And if we equate our assumptions about his ways with what he said, then we're going to find ourselves in a place of accusing the nature of God because what's actually happening is that our assumptions are being challenged, not his promises. And so in Palm Sunday, God fulfills his promises in surprising ways. Like I said, the book of Zechariah envisions a God coming to fight for Jerusalem in strength and power. But the way in which that God comes to the city is not on a horse. It is on a donkey. Actually, the colt of a donkey. I still can't figure out the image in my head because it says that Jesus, it says the disciples put him on them. I've never ridden a donkey and the colt of a donkey at the same time. I don't even know what that looks like. It's like this strange tension point. It's like, all right, I gotta figure, read some commentaries on that another time. Because what he's doing is just surprising. It's shocking. The strength of God revealed through this very humble procession. It is certainly a royal procession, but it's a very humble procession in the way that it plays out. Furthermore, let's consider that detail of the palms present at Passover. Now, Feast of Tabernacles is probably the feast that we know the least about in the Christian church. And there, I think there are reasons for that, and we can talk about those reasons maybe at another time. But Passover we're familiar with because it finds its fulfillment is Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
and that is, there's a lot of meaning for us in the Feast of Passover. Pentecost, you better believe we know about that one. It's Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, right? We know about Pentecost. It was, it was there's a lot there. It commemorated the day the law was given uh, for Moses. There were a lot of things that it did, and so it's about the Spirit of God descending as the new law on the community of Jesus. There's a lot to explore there on Pentecost. But Tabernacles is kind of like, yeah, what, what's that one about again? They have to eat outside or something? Like Tabernacles, what? Well, here's something interesting. We'll get into the meaning of tabernacle maybe another day. But let's look at a promise from Zechariah. Again, Zechariah is very specific in God's promises concerning the city of Jerusalem. And here's this promise from Zechariah about the Feast of Tabernacles in Zechariah chapter 14, verse number 16. Zechariah 14, 16. Now, if you just want a shocking chapter to read at some point, just check out Zechariah 14 and ask Pastor Joe about it later. <clears throat> All right? So he would love to discuss Zechariah 14 with you. It's just a, a, it's a, it's a startling chapter. It's a shocking chapter. All right? <laughs> Zechariah 14, 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. It is a promise from God that I believe he has not rescinded that at some point in the future, the nations will gather in Jerusalem to keep and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the only feast where God says specifically all nations will observe this one. All nations will come together at some point in the city of Jerusalem and they will keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So my question is, why do palm branches show up at Passover? And here's why I think palm branches show up at Passover. Because though it's not yet the Feast of Tabernacles, it's an indicator of how God is going to bring about his promise for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is all nations gathering together to worship the God of Israel. How is God going to bring that to pass? On his Passover, where he offers up the Lamb of God, not just for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. And it's through the atoning work of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that all nations begin to gather to the God of Israel to worship him as king. So I think Palm Branch's Palm branches show up at Passover because it's a sign that though this is not the right feast for this expression, this is the feast that God will ultimately bring into fulfillment the other feast because the juxtaposition of Palm Sunday shows us that God fulfills his promises in surprising ways. So if you're finding something in your life that seems out of place or it seems like a shock or it feels like a disappointment, just remember that God may be you seeing something you did not expect to do something in you you did expect. God may be using something in your life you did not see coming in order to prepare you for the things you did see coming. But the way in which God works is always surprising. Last thing I want to highlight about the juxtapositions of Palm Sunday is this. These tension points show us not just about the work of God, but it also shows us something about the nature of man. And here's what it shows us. We need each other. It shows us how much we need each other in the process of prophetic fulfillment. The work of God, God works partially, not because he's rejected total fulfillment, because he's bringing us there. 
God works patiently and just allows things to linger for a long time. God works in ways that are surprising, but also God works in ways that draws us closer to each other rather than separates us. So let's look at this in the story. Remember I brought out the detail that there was both familiarity and unfamiliarity on the day of Palm Sunday. That on one hand, multitudes knew exactly who Jesus was. Not just his natural identity, but his supernatural identity as well. That he was the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. But not only that, he's the son of David. He's there doing what God promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is there fulfilling God's narrative for the people of Israel and for the whole world. So they knew his natural identity, his supernatural identity, but then you get this moment where he walks in the city and the whole city is moved. They're excited, they're surprised, they're curious, but they don't know who he is. They say, who is this? So my question is, where did the multitude come from who knew the identity of Jesus? And that takes us to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, this will be the last passage that we look at. John chapter 12, looking at verses 17 and 18. Now if you go to the top of the heading of this passage in your Bible, it will probably say something like the triumphal entry. Because this moment in John 12, 17 and 18, it's not disconnected from Palm Sunday. This is John's account of it. This is the story of Palm Sunday. And John has a habit of giving us an inside look into moments that the other gospel writers give us an outside look into, right? It's like John, the friend of Jesus, the beloved of Jesus, has an in, like a, kind of like an inside story. Like Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus from a natural perspective. Jesus, um, John gives the genealogy of Jesus from a supernatural perspective, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and he talks about his divine nature. So same thing's going on here in John chapter 12, he gives us a little inside scoop into where this multitude came from that was bringing Jesus into the city as king. John 12, 17 and 18. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, those people bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard he had done this sign. John identifies the multitude around Jesus on Palm Sunday. The multitude didn't come from Jerusalem. They came from Bethany because they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Therefore, they knew his natural identity and his supernatural identity. And their testimony is what brought Jesus into the city as king. Here's what that teaches us about our own nature and the work of God in our lives. Sometimes we are Jerusalem and we need a Bethany to be a witness to us about our hour of visitation. Sometimes we're at Jerusalem, and though we're called, and though we're purposed, and though we have destiny, sometimes, because of what we're facing, we are blind to and deaf to the work of God that's standing right in front of us. Jerusalem, had it not been for the crowd from Bethany that was there when Jesus raised last from the dead, had it not been for that multitude, Jesus would have come into the city very quietly and all of Jerusalem would have remained unaware of his entrance as king. But because Bethany bore witness to him based on what they had seen, Jerusalem is awakened to start asking the right questions in her hour of visitation. You need people around you 
that will help you ask the right questions in your moment of visitation. Because sometimes what you're facing is so intense, you don't realize that God is knocking on your door. That Jesus is riding into your gates. That you're actually sitting right in the middle of a moment of fulfillment and you, because you're so heavy with what you're facing. Sometimes you're Jerusalem and you need Bethany to come wake you up. Sometimes you're Bethany and you got to use your voice to help wake up Jerusalem. In other words, your perspective concerning who God is and what God's doing, it's needed for the people around you. You've got to use your voice to talk about God. You've got to use your voice to talk about what he's done for you. The whole thing about Bethany is not, they, that, it's not like they had to invent a complex theology. They just talked about what they had seen. They just saw him do something, and they couldn't shut up about it. So when he starts riding to Jerusalem, they surround him with praises based upon what they knew about him. And you have no idea the impact of your voice. Sometimes we think God is God. He doesn't need me to do what he's going to do on the earth. But years ago, I heard him, uh, a couple of years ago, I heard a message about how even Jesus himself needs a witness. Jesus himself, when he was on the earth in the flesh, still needed the witness of John. John chapter 1 tells us that John the Baptist was not the light, but he bore witness to the light. Jesus was there in the flesh but still wanted John to bear witness so that people can interpret rightly what they were seeing when they looked at Jesus. You are in people's lives for a reason. We need each other. When you talk about the work of God, when you talk about what you've been hearing in prayer, when you talk about what you're seeing in scripture, when you talk about your own story, you know what it does? It awakens the sleeping Jerusalems around you to start asking the right questions who is this? Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? And it puts them in a place where even if they can't receive the fullness of what God's doing right now, it gets them on the way. Bethany's voice didn't fully awaken Jerusalem for her to step into total destiny. But it did wake her up, it did wake her up enough to at least partially receive what God was doing in that moment which then set it on a course to receiving him as king in its fullness of destiny. Your voice matters. So what do we learn from Palm Sunday? There's a lot going on in this story that doesn't really fit, doesn't really go together. A lot of juxtaposition, a lot of agitation if you really pay attention to the details. What does it teach us? It teaches us that God works incrementally in our lives. And I wanna encourage you again, do not get discouraged if you're in an incremental process, because what he's doing right now is not the end of what he's doing. What he's doing right now is simply preparing the way for all that he's going to do. Palm Sunday teaches us about the patience of God. He is more patient with us than we are with us. He is more patient with us than we are with us. Sometimes we review our lives and we say, shouldn't we be further along by now? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is, if you're walking with God, you're right where he wants you. He allows unresolved to linger for a long time so it can do in us what he needs it to do in us. The juxtaposition of Palm Sunday, it teaches us about the work of God, the patience of God, the way of God. He works in surprising ways. Don't get so married to your idea of God's means 
that you allow your disappointment with God's means to distract you from what God is actually doing in your life today and where he's taking you. He'll do what he said, but he may not do what he said the way you think he's going to do it. He operates in surprising ways. And finally, it teaches us that we need each other. We need other people's voices in our lives to keep us sharp concerning the work of God in our lives because we can't always see it on our own. And other people need our voice as well because your voice matters and your story of what he has done for you awakens them to see what he's doing for them. Let's go ahead and stand on our feet this morning. we're going to have our prayer teams move into place. You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, over the last few uh, Sundays, really over the last month or so, it's like corporately the Lord has been speaking to us in such amazing ways about our vocation corporately in terms of what he's doing in this hour, in this generation, in this work. And like that is in my bones, I love it. I love contending there, I love being there. I'm with you in that 100%. But I also feel that this morning, that in the midst of all the larger corporate things, God wants to come in very individually. God wants to come in very personally and remind you that in the middle of the big story, he also sees your story. He sees where you are in the process. He sees where you are in this moment. He sees the the tension points. He knows what it's like to be trying to paint a self-portrait and have an apple over your face. Can't figure out where you are, what your identity is, and you can't get around it, you can't look past it. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be reading a T.S. Eliot poem and you think it's a nice evening spread out with a nice sunset and then all of a sudden it's another surgery around the corner. God, what are you doing? He knows what it's like to live with the frustration of juxtaposition. He knows what it's like to have your hopes disappointed because you thought different things and where am I? He knows all of that and I believe right now he wants to come in with his compassion, with his understanding, with his life and just remind you, your story is not over yet. Where you are is not where you end. That's not like Christian social media hype. That is the nature of the way God works in the earth. He works incrementally and patiently, ultimately, faithfully moving us toward his desired end. So if you would just open your heart to the Lord right now, I wanna pray over you. Our team's gonna begin to lead us in just a moment. I'm also gonna release you to meet with our, our prayer team. As they pray over you, words of encouragement, words of life. Pray over your open our hearts that may look for you like lifting your hands. It may just be simply put them out in front of you. Maybe you're not familiar with church or God or even know what to do. I want to encourage you just to find a way to say, God, I- I'm open to you right now. So, Father, I ask that right now you would come in to every heart. You come in personally. <laughs> you come in personally. And warmly, Lord, you'd come in, whoa. You'd come in a way, Lord, that, that, that helps us to understand that you see right where we are. 
As I'm praying right now, I'm just seeing this picture that some of you think God is detached from your story. But like the city of Jerusalem, he is not delaying things with a sinister humor. It's not like he enjoys seeing you in prolonged pain. If he's delaying things, he's doing it with tears in his eyes. The way he wept over Jerusalem, he weeps with us and for us and over us. Because he knows what it's like to be in the pain of disappointment. And so, Father, I declare right now that your compassion is here in a tangible way. You've not abandoned us. You've not overlooked us. Lord, you're not absentee from our story, but you're right in the middle of it right now, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask for encouragement. I ask for hope. I ask for life. Father, I ask for assurance and confirmation of your promises. Just as the Apostle Paul wrote that Jesus, you came as a servant of the truth to confirm the promises made to the fathers. May today, Lord, may there be supernatural confirmations, Lord, of the promises you've made to our hearts in Jesus' name. And Lord, we turn our hearts to you today in fresh hope. We turn our hearts to you today in fresh joy. We turn our hearts to you today, Lord, with fresh expectation, saying, God, would you continue to write this story? Would you continue to be faithful through every chapter? Would you continue to lead us by your Spirit and help us to navigate the difficulty and the tension of what it looks like to be in the process? We ask for that, Father, in Jesus' name.